I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss the Orville, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Injustice, the DC Universe, Superman, Neuromancer, Westworld, RUR, and the Macropolis case. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for, for joining us. Welcome. Yeah, so this is the, the fourth of four episodes devoted to folks that we talked to at the Pop Culture Association meetings. We have two more interviews for you today. Um, but before we do that, a um, couple of things to report, or a handful of things. Uh, so I was looking forward to a nice, pleasant, relaxing summer. Uh, <laughs> So that never happens, but um, this time it's not happening um, for good reasons. And, and actually, it's I'm the one that it's not not happening to. So, um, Rach got some really good news this week, where she had applied for the Tom Reagan Research Fellowship um, at North Carolina State University, and um, ended up winning it. So, um, what what does that entail for you? Oh, it's great. So. Um... What it means is that I will get to spend a month uh, in the uh, library special collections, animal rights, animal welfare special collection at North Carolina State. And uh, the fellowship is named after Tom Reagan, who if you've read anything in animal rights or animal welfare, I'm sure that that's a familiar name to you. He's sort of the leading figure on the animal rights approach side. Um, where you can contrast that with maybe a utilitarian perspective or something like that. Mm-hmm. So he's arguing for, for, for robust rights for um, non-human animals. So the Reagan versus Singer sort of thing. Right. And, uh... um, and I love both of them. So it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I recently stumbled upon a book that they edited together, and I was like, oh, fangirl <laughs> yeah, but we, we have a, a picture of, of tom reagan on my nightstand and peter singer on rachel's and we, we switch them every oh, night so no. it comes out equally and so some nights I, I kiss the picture of reagan before i go to sleep no and... <laughs> yeah but so uh that that should be really cool i'll get to just my days will just be full of uh, totally occupied with uh, reading the extensive works in the special collections i got a uh uh, table of contents of what's there and it's just massive so I've got to start planning my time what I'm going to try to tackle right and so for me that means I can just sit around and do nothing all that time except for if you're working hard I'm going to feel real guilty so I'm <laughs> going to pick up projects um, <clears throat> I do have in July that ethics bowl summer workshop at DePaul University the 19th through 21st 
If you're involved in Ethics Bowl and you're listening to this podcast, you might want to consider coming to that. Or if you'd like to be involved in the Ethics or Bowl. Or would like to be involved, right. So go, go to the Ethics Bowl webpage for details on the conference. It's inexpensive. It's a nice event. Um, we do fun things, um, sessions for newcomers and all that. Um, next week, we're um, giving a couple of talks and doing a book signing at the Ogden um, Uncon conference which is a comic-con essentially yeah right? sort of local yeah. so if you're if you're in the the salt lake city farmington ogden logan area um we'll be there all day on friday you might want to consider going to that um i'll be doing a couple of book signings this summer so it, it, things are are filling in yeah. all right so um on to the interviews sure great we're talking to david kyle johnson and michael berry so welcome, guys. Thanks hey, for, thanks for having thanks us. For joining thanks. us. So what are uh, what are your presentations on here at the conference? Well, we're we're doing kind of a joint presentation, although it's two separate. Like so, it's I'm going and he's going on the Orville, which is Seth MacFarlane's uh, new sci-fi show on Fox, okay. uh, which is a kind of a mashup of Star Trek and MASH in a certain kind of way. Oh. Um, and uh, I'm going to, so I'll lay out my, my half of it. Uh, I'm going to argue that uh, the Orville is still doing uh, what science fiction does best, is even possibly the best science fiction on television wow. now, um, because it does something I call cloaking bias to create cognitive dissonance. This is this way it gets this kind of moral message or social commentary across. Uh, and that it's consistently doing this in the first season, and I'll lay that out very quickly, and then... It's still doing it in the second season. That's the still doing sci-fi. Uh, okay, can you best. describe for our, our uh, listeners what that phenomenon is? Uh, with the Orville or cloaking bias create cognitive dissonance? That. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so the idea is that it cloaks bias. Um, this is something that, that's akin to something that's also called cognitive estrangement. It cloaks bias by telling you a story that seems to be so far removed from the real world that you bring none of your ordinary world, worldly biases to it. Right? Mm -hmm. So we obviously have biases where we evaluate things before they're even done and we, we cast judgment on what's going on, right? With, with a sci-fi story, if it's far enough removed, you just kind of look at it bare, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you figure out from the story, that's the good guy, that's the bad guy, or that was wrong, that was right. You make your valuations and it's pretty bias-free because it's not a world that you're invested in, okay. right? Like you're not as invested as you are in the real world, right? So that's, that's how it cloaks bias is by that kind of cognitive estrangement, huh. right? But then what can happen is you realize at some point in the episode, oh, this isn't actually that different from the real world. Mm -hmm. It's actually very much like the real world. And if in the real world you're concluding something different than what you've concluded about the fictional world, this can create the cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I realized that this was the bad guy, but... The analogous person in the real world is that guy, and I voted for that guy, right? right. Like, right. And so there's a problem, right? Uh, and so this causes you to maybe reevaluate your real-world positions. It, it reveals your, your biases that are coloring your view of the real world, and you can end up, like, revising the way that you look at the world. And that I, what I'm arguing is that the Orville does this over and over and over again. It keeps telling these stories, and they have these kind of very obvious, like, bad guy, good guy, moral messages or whatever. And then you realize, oh, that's just like what we're doing here, what I'm doing here. And you can actually reevaluate uh, your position. Can you give us an example from the show? Uh, yeah. So, like, the obvious example is what I'm going to kind of talk about is um, in the show, there is a race of people called the Mocklins. The Mocklins are an all-male society. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're all homosexual, right? So okay. all the relationships are male-male, are right? Um, and in, like, the second episode, the couple that's on the, the, the show has a baby girl, 
Huh, okay. Right? And this is not supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen very rarely. And so they want to do a sex change operation oh. on the infant. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the doctor on the ship does not want to do that. And one of the... the par- Both parents initially want to do that. And then actually they do this cloaking vice create cognitive distance, get him to change his mind by showing him the Rudolph the Red Reindeer claymation thing. <laughs> and, he, and he liked the show. And they realize like, oh... Rudolph was different, and yet he is. Maybe she can be different too, right? So, like, they actually have it in the show, and he changes his mind, and uh, uh-huh. uh, right. Uh, so, but it's all like you can realize, like, clearly what they're doing is wrong, and then you realize that what they're doing is not diff- that different than what we do with people in gender or people we do with what we do with people in sexual preference. Right. Um, and uh, you eventually find that this happened just this season. You eventually find out, and I suspected this from the get go. They're not actually an all-male society. Okay. Being female has been so reviled in the society oh. for so long that any time anyone has had a female child, they just wow. automatically change it to a male. And this has happened so long in secret oh, wow. that now it just seems like it's not, and it's not at all. And in this, like one of the latest episodes, they've discovered an entire planet where the females have been like there's an underground railroad. Oh wow! And they've been pulling females out for their safety. And that's oh, really good, right? But oh. then we realize, oh my God, this is what we do with homosexuality and with transgender, and like it's yeah. and it's this and yeah. Anyway, okay, nice, yeah. great, effective. So, yeah. yeah, so it's it's really good. Like the Orville is really good at doing this, except for there's this one episode where they totally screwed up, and that's what Mike's talking about. Oh, great, yeah. well, good transition. Yep, he's wrong. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> by and large, he's correct. But there is this one particular episode called Cupid's Dagger. Which the premise of it is is that there's this alien named Rulio, played by Rob Lowe, who comes on board the Oroville. And his job is to analyze an ancient artifact to determine its origin. Because at the center of the uh, dispute about the origin of this particular planet, there are two warring factions that both claim that they are the primary species and should be in power. And so... Identifying the DNA would help resolve that particular question. Unbeknownst to the crew, Derulio's emitting a pheromone that makes people that he comes in contact with, with touching, intensely sexually attracted to him. Now, the commanding officer and the captain of the Oroville used to be a married couple. Derulio shakes their hands. And it creates a problem because Derulio is actually involved with the commanding officer in an affair. That's why they got divorced is because she cheated on him with Derulio. Right. So, and this reoccurs. Well, during the course of the episode, uh, both the captain and the commanding officer sleep with Derulio. (laughs) And Derulio also then comes into actual uh, contact with a creature named Yafit, who's sort of this blob, jello kind of character. (laughs) Accidentally transmits pheromone to him. He is then in love with the ship's doctor, and she wants nothing to do with him. But he shows up at the sick bay, and he starts singing a romantic song. He presents presents her with flowers and touches her. Well... A little later, she shows up to Yafet's uh, quarters in a scantily dressed dress mm-hmm. and saying, let's go, baby, basically. <laughs> so 
what my paper is looking at is the moral implications of it, but in particular whether or not free will is present in any of these uh, situations. Is there consent? And okay. my argument is is that if you um, take the libertarian notion of free will, there isn't because these pheromones are changing who mm -hmm. they are. So my position is it's a, is that because the pheromones change who both Kelly and Ed, the commanding officer and the captain, are, that they aren't acting on free will. Neither is Yafit, and neither mm -hmm. is Dr. Finn. Um, so they're, and I talk about the idea of compatibilism and whether or not this opera, you know, this mm -hmm. um, would be consistent with compatibilism. Right. My answer is no, okay, because well, they, okay. their brain chemistry has changed. Okay. And so it it might even be a short-term change, but they are still not acting. I mean, there's a genuine desire, but they're not really acting under free will. It's more akin to like an alien impulse right. kind of thing. Okay. Right. So I make... Oh, no, no, actually, no, the, if I might clarify, yeah. right? So okay. the, the issue is that like um, they... they they would be free in a compatibilist notion because what the pheromone seems to do is change who they are at a fundamental level. Like okay. Ed no yeah. longer cares about being captain. Okay. Uh, Kelly no longer cares about other commitments that she's had or other decisions that she's made. Like, so like on a Frank Ferdian kind of compatibilist, mm -hmm. you're free if you're acting in accordance with your second order wants and desires. Yeah. This pheromone doesn't just like release inhibitions. Like it changes who you are and changes your second order desires. Okay. So that on like Frankfurt's definition, they would be acting freely and so they would be giving consent. But the problem is it doesn't really look like they're really giving consent. Like normally we'd say, no, right. they're not actually right. giving And consent, I draw right? the analogy with like say a roofie, but a roofie acts as a inhibitor of um, compulsion. So yeah. it you decrease inhibitions. Yeah. The Pheromone acts kind of as an active agent to really change right. your desires. So then I talk about the idea of how this isn't really consent. And at the end of the paper, I talk about how this is just kind of morally suspect. Okay. And that if the producers and writers had really wanted to do moral justice to what was going on, what they would have done is... When Derulio first gets to the ship, he would have announced, I have this pheromone. I'm in heat. Uh -huh. And they would have made him do simple things like wear gloves. Okay, <laughs> right, right. And that way, if we do have this sense of free choice, uh -huh. then the people can say, okay, yes, I want to be exposed to the pheromone or... No, I don't. And, and so just to, to clarify, so this Derulio character emits this pheromone but doesn't have control over emitting it, right? So yeah, yeah. No, so it's, yeah, it's not right. But he it, knows it, he it's is. all okay. natural. Okay. Right. Okay. Like yeah. he knows that he at least he knows that he can. Maybe he's right. not quite clear when he goes into heat, but he knows he can, he knows he's near it, and he whatever it happens with Ed and Kelly, right. like he knows what's happening, right? The the moral problem with the episode, and again, it's so every other episode is so good. Kind of with, with its moral message. The problem with this episode morally is that they do not chastise him. They're not right. like, you're in big trouble for doing this. You've right. done something wrong, uh -huh. right? They and just kind of let it go. And as a matter of fact, fact, I claim that they weaponized the pheromone because the way they resolve the conflict between the two warring factions is that they synthesize a variant of the pheromone, gives it unknowingly to both ambassadors and have them touch so that they fall in love. 
uh-huh. which stops the war. Which stops the war. Okay, so this this is transferable to yes, that. yes, okay, okay, yeah. So that's what happened with Yafit, right? Yeah. So yeah. He, he touched Rob, he touched Derulio, uh, and then he touched right, and so like okay. the effect is okay. from her is onto Yafit, right? Okay. So they okay. realize that they can kind of mess with it or whatever, and they make these two the leaders of these two warring factions fall in love. They're going to get married, and I mean they are like huh. they, it is. They are really sweet on each other, and it ends the whole war, right? Okay. But they or at least are, short term. At least short term, right? But right, they because Julio yeah. claims that this will eventually wear off, which I think is really problematic. Because if these two ambassadors then go, what the hell? <laughs> you know, you cheated on me. You were wrong. I hate you. It could potentially backfire and make the conflict. Even worse, right? So, right, you, you want know. to resolve a conflict based on the actual substance, right? Right, right. those are the utilitarian right. concerns, right? Right, right. the right. utilitarian concerns. I mean, they're wrong because ultimately, I think it can just backfire. So, the, if I understand the the line is that the Orville is normally pretty good with these moral situations, and in this case, they missed the mark. Yeah, oh, is it is, absolutely? Do, do you think that it's a just a sort of a mere missing of the mark, or do you think the producers? Are perhaps just sort of committed to this kind of utilitarian. Hey, we we solved the the problem with the war, and weren't sort of sufficiently far sighted and right, right, yeah. long sighted yeah. in their utilitarian tactics. Would they would they stand by it or? Yeah, I, mean, hard I, to I, 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 do, I don't think so. I think this was just actually a case of pretty sloppy writing because okay. the um, relationship between Ed and Kelly had been to at the forefront of a lot of the earlier episodes. But they kind of needed to transition away from that and resolve that. So that's how they do this. Mm-hmm. And in particular, something happens at the end of the episode I think is incredibly problematic. Because at the end, Derulio's about to exit the ship. And Ed and Kelly are there. And they say, when you were with Kelly, were you under, you know, the were you influence? In were you mm-hmm. in heat? Were you Midian's pheromone? And... Drill looks at them and goes, maybe, which huh. just gaslights yeah. and is just really indicative of really, really bad sexual morality. Right, okay. and they just let them off the hook. And then right. and, and okay. it ends that they never talk about it again. They never, you know, resolve the conflict and. Other it comes up in season two a little bit later, but like, okay. but I it, haven't seen season yeah, yeah, two yeah. yet. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, so like they like to, to your to your question, Richard. Uh, like if. If they had done this, if they had had a scene where, you know, uh, Alara, who's, who's getting onto him, had said, what you're doing is wrong, you shouldn't have done that, you're right, you're about to, like, they, they all kind of agreed on that, but we have this war that's about to happen, we could save millions of lives, mm-hmm. right, maybe it's worth it, maybe we can do another version of this where we make them fall in love, and maybe that's not ideal, but we, there's this utilitarian calculus, they don't do that, they right. just do it and have no discussion about it being morally problematic at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of sexual assault nature of the effect of this pheromone. They just don't even discuss it. And that's, that's what so I find so So it's kind of a fail. Yeah, I think he's overlooked. I think McFarlane, Seth McFarlane, the, the producer, and he plays Ed, and he's the writer, like, I mean, one of the main writers, whatever. I think he just overlooked this fact. He just didn't realize the connection right. of, like, just kind of letting Derulio off the hook. Interesting. So if we can change directions, Kyle, you've got a, a handbook. Yeah, so uh, this is another reason that, that Mike's here, because Mike's going to be writing for it. Um, so it's not out yet. It's going to actually be a long time before it's out in actual physical form. Uh, but it is uh, Pelgrave's A Handbook of Popular Culture as Philosophy. 
Uh, and so the idea uh, is different than like the Of Philosophy series, right? The Of Philosophy series uses pop culture as a kind of springboard as a way to discuss philosophy and introduce philosophy to the general populace, right? The, the handbook's goal is to take particular films, television shows, comedians uh, are going to be covered, uh, games uh, will likely be covered, um, and treat them as philosophy. So the idea is that the authors of these of these works are actually trying to make some kind of philosophical argument, much like the Orville does, right? Like they're trying to make some kind of philosophical argument. Mm-hmm. And the goal of each chapter in the handbook is to identify what that argument is and then evaluate it philosophically. Uh, and so before it's available in like physical format, it's going to be a really big, a really big handbook. It's going to be 75, 10,000 word chapters at the minimum. Um, but the idea is that as these things are, are written over a long period of time, they'll be available online and they'll be part of like online catalogs and libraries. Any, any library that has access to Pelgrave's library will have access to these. And they're intended for use in the classroom. They're intended for philosophy classes, for media criticism classes, communication classes uh, that students can read and kind of they, they summarize the work very briefly and then they identify this philosophical problem or question <coughs> or message that's being getting at and then... It's evaluated that, that way. And very useful. I know a lot of teachers um, get students engaged with philosophical issues by saying, how does this relate to popular culture? Mm-hmm. Showing maybe episodes in the classroom. And so that, that really yeah. gives students a hook yeah. into some of these issues. It's yeah, consistent with the history of philosophy, too. So a line that I've taken in the past is, you know, when Plato's introducing the Ring of Gyges, he's using the pop culture of the day. And it's, it's a long philosophical tradition. So, um, what are what are some of the shows or comedians or movies that you've already received um, essays for? You're going to put me on the spot. Um, you don't have to list all well, of them. Well, Greg, can I? We do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Talk about yeah. yours. I'm actually doing a chapter, and what I'm doing is that there is a my primary research interest is in superheroes. So there is a video game called Injustice. Okay, I've just played that. Yeah, and that video game gave birth to a five-year-long series of an alternative telling of the DC universe. Mm. And basically what happens is that in this particular universe, the Joker tricks Superman into killing both Lois Lane, and when Superman kills Lois Lane, it sets off an atomic weapon in Metropolis and blows the city up. Well, the central premise then of the story is at what point do security issues outweigh individual liberties and the superheroes are divided. Basically, Superman is like, never going to happen again. He kills the Joker by putting his fist through the Joker. It's a really cool piece of artwork that I have up in my office. And then... um, So he tries to securitize the entire world. Batman, who is usually represented the law and order kind of person, is like, can't do this, it violates liberties. And so this big factional war that divides the superheroes um, plays out. And it's over a five-year span. And so you see a lot of the issues playing out of the security versus individual liberties kind of in a very uh, both macro sense and the individual decision making that individuals go through. Oh, that's great. Great. Um, and just one final thing. When can we expect to see the Orville and philosophy and bookstores? And Well, we don't have an Orville and philosophy book yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's this is, but there's this is what you're talking. About. That's what we're talking about here at the, at the at the conference here. But that's in the works. In the works. So yeah. I can't give you a date or anything like that. But I've got a, a, a kind of offer going and some okay. alternate plans, and we'll, we'll we'll see we'll see what it comes out to. But I'm hoping that that will that will materialize. Um, Great. In the next year. Awesome. Or two. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah. No problem. Okay, we're talking to Christopher Ketchum, um, and welcome, Chris. Welcome, thanks, thank you. Thanks for joining us, and I should say, um, Rates and I are delighted to, to meet Chris. Um, he's, we've been working with him for years, but never met in person. He's yeah, been in several of our edited collections, so um, we saw him at the conference, um, he came into a session, and we're like, oh my gosh, that's Chris, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. really fun to meet you. So, um, well, thank you. This, this is nice. So, so what, what did you present on here at the conference? Well, I was looking at William Gibson's Neuromancer. Oh, great. That's which cool. is, um, if you look at the context of it, it is 1984, a year which has a, quite a bit of interest in a number of things going on, including the famous book, 1984. Yeah. But it was also Prince's Purple Rain, mm-hmm. and it was the year Mac came out. But it was also the year that Microsoft was still using DOS. Mm. But Gibson invents the world cyberspace. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing explodes, Mm. just like the Apple commercial. So what I wanted to look at is ask myself, at the very end in the book, he says, Case, a console cowboy, jacks into the Internet or at that time, there was no winter. And he jacks into the Matrix, they call it, which mm-hmm. is reminiscent of the 1999 <clears throat> movie, and sends his disembodied consciousness into a consensual hallucination. So there are three important things. First of all, you have a physical device to jack in. Second of all, you have disembodied consciousness, which is a problem all in itself. And the third one is consensual hallucination. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I went to Merleau-Ponty and I said, you know, can you help me understand Maurice Merleau-Ponty, the, the long uh, uh, dead uh, philosopher of the mid-20th uh, century? He wrote The Phenomenology of Perception. And to ask him, can you disembody your consciousness? He basically says your, your, your mind is embedded in your body and your body is embodied in the world. Mm-hmm. So it makes it difficult to be able to disembody your consciousness from that perspective. But he gives a lot of clues about hallucinations because he did work with people who are hallucinatory. He also worked with uh, amputees to look at the phantom limb syndrome. Mm. So he was very yeah, interested okay. in perceptivity. So what he basically said is that we don't create the world, we communicate with it, and that communication, we make what we see of it in our own minds. Mm -hmm. So I said, ooh, if I can't become disembodied, I mean, Descartes said we could, but Merleau-Ponty says, no, I don't think we can do that. Is there something Kantian going on there, right? You're just sort of um, limited to a kind of phenomenology mm-hmm. such that you don't get into the world? Um, 
Well, you know, what you're doing is you're not you're not <clears throat> taking in. In other words, you're not consuming the tree that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You're communicating with it, and you're getting messages back, which you turn into right. your form of reality. But he also says that hallucinogenic people know that they're hallucinating. Mm -hmm. They 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 tell him that they're hallucinating, right. so they know the real from the irreal. And I said to myself. Well, how can you have a consensual hallucination when you know what's out there isn't really real? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, maybe the jacked-in device isn't something that actually disembowels your consciousness, so to speak, and throws mm -hmm. it out into the world. But it's something that's plugged into your senses and actually creates a real sensual experience. We're getting closer and closer to be even be able to read brain waves now. We could mm -hmm. do it primitively mm -hmm. to see, well, this person is thinking about dogs maybe at this point in time. Interesting. But what if we could tap right into the sensory nerves and create those sensations of the creepy crawlies crawling up and down your body or something of that nature? So to me, I thought that might be a very interesting avenue to pursue is how, if we want to create some kind of uh, really intense virtual reality, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. we could do it through actually manipulating the nerves, not necessarily manipulating, but using like an HTML for sensory neurons. Right. The far <laughs> yeah. cry from putting on goggles and Yeah, saying, you're actually a, having full-on like. yeah. phenomenal. Your whole body is getting, yeah. you know, is being addressed by this. So that's the kind of direction that I wanted to, you know, basically open a, dis a dialogue on as opposed to come up with something. I have no idea how to do this, but I think we're getting closer and closer to this particular kind of thing yeah. to be able to understand what it is. And we're also getting closer to understanding perhaps what consciousness is. Uh, I know Dave, David Chalmers has been working on this for years. He's yeah, like yeah. the guru. And right now he's thinking there, there, there are two extremes that may be right. One is that consciousness is an illusion meaning that there is no gestalt called consciousness that's greater than the sum of its parts. And the other is panpsychism, that consciousness is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the first basically says what I'm saying, it's be difficult to disembody something that you're permanently attached to. But the second panpsychism opens up a number of different questions that I think have been addressed previously. Parmenides, for example, being, mm -hmm. is, and cannot not be is complete, undifferentiated, mm -hmm. and endures. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's always there. And then you go to Schopenhauer and says, "Well, the ego's the thing in itself. It's everywhere. Everything. The ego attaches to you when you're born and doesn't leave you until you die." Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that panpsychist type of discussion yeah. going on since the dawn of time. And I'm wondering whether there's anything to that or can we accomplish that kind of, of, of manipulation of consciousness through this device that I'm talking about that simulates real phenomenon that you feel it like you would if you're actually getting punched in the face by right. Muhammad Ali. Right. Mm -hmm. right. All right. So that was a, that's kind of 
where I'm thinking that this might go a little bit, but it's, it's much more of an explore, exploratory piece, really, than something that I can say, aha, this yeah. is what's going to happen. But bringing Merleau-Ponty in, uh, I think, uh, into science fiction is something we really need to do mm-hmm. in a great way. Oh, yeah, wow, that's... great. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So good discussion at the session on that? Um, yes, we had a lot of good discussion on Westworld as well. Oh, good. Oh, cool. I, I can't imagine people wouldn't yeah. just delight in, in that particular topic. So. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. I mean, it was a very good discussion. We have a medieval uh, English instructor who's really got into this and R-U-R at the same time. Capex R-U-R, which is a play in, I think it's, uh, uh, he's Czechoslovakian, but it it is basically a precursor to Westworld. Oh, interesting. You were talking about Capex, the Necropolis case in your your talk. R-U-R. R-U-R. Yeah, there are some translations of it, but... um, um, it is not that well known, but if you look at it, you begin to see it sounds just like Westworld. Yeah, and oh, Westworld are going in the out. opposite direction right. from Mother Party, right? You, they take the consciousness and they can upload it anywhere, right? You've got um, beings that live downloading their consciousness to exist after they die and so forth. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, question. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, it's a wrap. Episode 23 is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Chardonnay. So um, we'll be back in two weeks with the final um, episode of season three, um, where we'll be talking about um, my new book, Spoiler Alert. It's a book about the philosophy of spoilers. Um, We'll get into some of the ethics of spoiling, the metaphysics of spoiling, some pragmatic issues. Um, as much as we can possibly pack into 45 minutes or an hour, thereabouts. Should be a lot of fun. But pick up a copy of the book if you haven't yet and uh, go on, on Amazon and, and rate and review it. Yeah, ratings, ratings are um, essential for all things in life. So, we'll run <laughs> that note. Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Dear students, please evaluate us some more. Um, but um, if you haven't gone to um, Apple Podcasts and rated this podcast and are inclined to do so, um, it helps us a lot. So, we, we appreciate getting ratings there. All right, well, see you next, um, see you in two weeks, everybody. Bye.